We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I would not build a business model like Atlassian's because because Atlassian's numbers like didn't do that. You know, it was not a company that did the triple, triple, double, double, double. It kind of, I mean, it didn't exactly look like a turd because it was it was sitting off free cash flow. But when you're at 20 or 30 or 40 million of ARR and only growing 50%, that is not a super sexy company by then, by then standards, but certainly by today's standards. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool, Jay. Um, I I've really appreciated just like learning from you over over the years. Really grateful that you're taking time with us to to do this today. I think like Atlassian, uh, in particular, is a, a great place for us to start. It's like one of these companies that I think so many people have heard of, but not everybody has been exposed to like all of the particularities that made it so special. Um, so yeah, I would love to start talking 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 there with you. One of the things that I think is noteworthy that I'm curious to hear your take on is it seems like Atlassian has always had this real focus on efficiency. And I think whenever you talk to anybody from Atlassian, whether they're in the like go-to-market org or you talk to leaders from product as well, everyone seems to really think about sort of the efficiency metrics. Like how are we acquiring customers? How is it going to scale? Obviously, Atlassian sort of famously didn't need to raise primary capital so I'm I'm sort of just curious to hear from your vantage point, like what was that? Like what what made Atlassian different than so many other companies that were all on sort of the VC treadmill? I think it was it was uh, a byproduct of when the company was born. You know, the company was born after the dot com crash in 2002, and you know also to yeah you know, it was in Australia, two developers you know that that you know I think dropped out of their last year of college and. And wanted to start a company together, or at least did so immediately after finishing school in Sydney, building tools for developers, targeting, um, you know, effectively open source as a competitor. And so they weren't going to charge a lot of products. I mean, it, was, it wasn't really a fundable proposition at the time. And so I think a lot of the focus on efficiency and leverage and just thinking about scale was just born out of necessity, right? I mean, it was, it, it was probably couldn't have raised venture capital had it wanted to. And so it was bootstrapped. And when you bootstrap, you know, you're funding the business from the cash register. And so you're thinking every dollar that I've earned, you know, I'm going to figure out thoughtfully how to invest that dollar in future dollars that I can earn. And um, and so I think the company was just wired that way. I mean, it was, you know, it was a, a pretty frugal place, but frugal in a good way, not a bad way. Although, you know, for the first, I was there for 12 years. The first eight years, uh, I flew coach to Sydney every time I got, you know, like the whole company did, because it was also a very, very egalitarian place. You know, we we were, um, it was, you know, we were all on the same boat. I think there was, there was no kind of levels or hierarchy. And so if anyone was going to fly, um, you know, business class, the whole company was going to fly business class. And so we were all kind of in it together. But but you know, it it I think we spent the company's money as if it were our own, and as if you know, we're hard earned because it was. I'm curious about how it impacted like the way that you thought about building go to market. You know, like in it's almost hard for you know a traditional venture backed Silicon Valley company to think about because in so many ways we're all thinking, well, I can raise this much, and so you know I'll have this burn ratio where I'm going to add this much ARR for this much burn. And, you know, so we even had these concepts that, that don't even apply. You must've been thinking in different metrics to even work that way. I'm curious, like, how did you sort of orchestrate the go-to-market teams as you were building in these like super efficient ways? Well, by the time I joined in 2008, it was already profitable. So it was generating free cash flow from the quantum of customers that it was acquiring at you know, the ACBs that it was acquiring those customers through. And so then just the question is, well, how big is that market um, for us to go? Do we need to change anything or is just the TAM big enough for us to, you know, continue um, adding features to that business model and figuring out how to scale? And, and that's what I came in to do. 
Um, but you know, the bulk of the business was operating successfully. And so, you know, we were the thing that we always heard was, hey, this is it's cute. You know, your business model, you know, will scale to five million of revenue or 10 million of revenue or 20 million of revenue. There's no way it gets to 50. And then when we got to 50, it was like, there's no way it gets to 100. And, and there's no way it gets to five. And there's always sort of like, you know, this this hypothetical barrier that we would smash into and then have to change. And that was the, the counsel that we always got. I think just because nobody had seen a business model like ours just continue to scale. And um, and so, you know, that, that was like the job was how many customers can we go get at these price points? And, and, and also like, what does winning that customer provide us in the future? Like, what does that give us a future opportunity to do to sell them more product, to expand them, you know, with, uh, higher value SKUs, kind of additional things that, you know, that we could sell them over time. And, you know, we just believed that the hardest thing for any, any company to do is, is acquire a new customer, expand, oftentimes expanding that existing customer or selling them additional things is easier because you've built a relationship. Presumably you've, you know, you've given them a lot of value and, and, you know, they, um, you know, they value the relationship in exchange. And so if there's other things that, that, that you can provide them, you know, that deliver value, they're probably going to look to you to provide them. And that was the belief. The hardest part about building our, our you know, the foundation of this, this, this truly product-led growth, product-led selling engine, you know, that we built and scaled was just that nobody had done it, uh, done it like we had, or it scaled it to the point that we had. And so it's, you know, there's always some anxiety around that. You know, when you're first to, I always love to to use that penguin, you know, the penguin metaphor, where you know the penguins that sort of like hang out in the, you know, the 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 tip of the ice and, you know, they huddle and there's sort of safety in numbers, right? Which by the way, I think is if I draw kind of a through line on business models, part of the reason that you see business models that all look the same is because everybody's done it before. And it's sort of a tried and true playbook where, you know, in sales and marketing, you know, the very traditional B2B selling motion, everybody does it. So it's sort of a, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of like be a penguin that hangs back in the pack. And I, I think we were, you know, that first penguin that kind of jumps off the edge and you know, two things happen to that penguin. Either they're the first to get eaten by a shark, or that they fill their bellies full of all the fish that the rest of the penguins didn't jump in. And you know, fortunately, we got the latter, not the former. That's funny. Yeah, I think I heard that they kind of like knock one penguin in on purpose to like you know test the waters a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's what happens. Yeah, the sacrificial penguin. So I guess, do you think? Because it's it's an interesting question of like, I guess you 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 built it this way with sort of, you know, we're going to play for the very long term, we're not going to race to it. And we're just going to believe that this will keep compounding partially because, you know, as you sort of described, like that was sort of just the option in front of you. I guess the two questions that are going through my mind here are, if you had wanted to grow way faster, if you had raised a ton of EC in 2008, could you have grown way faster? Um, or actually, were you growing pretty near the natural rate? And looking back, do you think that in many ways, this was the healthiest thing you could have done? No, I'm sure we could have grown faster. The, the, thing that, the thing that we deferred is we deferred any focus or, you know, or commercialization of the most valuable segment for B2B, which is the enterprise segment or upper mid-market. And we were selling into that segment. And so you know, the, the, we had, you know, I don't know, 75% of the Fortune 500, but in very, they weren't spending a lot of money with us. And you know that was sort of like the part of the equation that anyone that looked at the business would say you're you're doing it wrong. Like you, you know, a, a big company like Boeing should be spending millions of dollars for software that thousands of people in their organization use on a daily basis. Like you're leaving way too much much money at the table. And by the way, we knew that. And so, uh, but you know, serving that that segment requires a different level of investment in product and a different different level of investment in go to market. We would have had, had to have built out you know, a proper sales organization. And by the way, with that sales organization comes a proper SC organization and enablement and training and sales operations and, you know, and, uh, you know, a legal contingent because we'd be doing a lot, a lot more hand rolling of, of, of agreements and kind of relationships with big strategic customers. Our proto product roadmap would probably, you know, need to be more attentive to, you know, what big customers needed that the sales organization would tell the product organization, if you don't do these things, we're not going to win these deals. Like we didn't have any of that. And we, by the way, that was a deliberate intentional choice that, you know, what we believed was if we landed inside of those organizations, we we would preserve a future opportunity 
you know, to to you know tilt the 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 commercialization uh, you know more in our favor. We were we were providing way more value for the customer than we were getting back. But it also meant that we just didn't need to invest in parts of the business that needed to support that growth. Part of the anxiety you know we felt is we were a company you know that was growing uh, you know at somewhere between forty and sixty percent. Um, well, shy of 100 million in revenue, even by by today's standards, or you know, certainly by 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 standards back then, we wouldn't have looked like a very attractive growth company because we weren't, you know, we weren't at 50 million, almost doubling, going from 50 to 100. And by the way, there are competitors in our market that were, and those competitors were doing the exact opposite of us. They were selling, you know, C-suite on down. They were going knocking on the doors of the global 2K. They were trying to convince you know, a C-level executive to spend millions of dollars on software that would transform their organization. A lot of like big solution selling and value selling. And here's all the, the you know, and, and discovery of, of pain inside of those big organizations that they could map to what their software would bring, like very typical. And, and so it caused us anxiety when you saw them kind of race by us, where we thought, man, are we doing the wrong, or the wrong thing? Um, and I think we recognized that we couldn't have built, like Atlassian wouldn't, you know, eventually had to go access that customer segment and that part of the market and participate in the value that we were bringing those customers to to become what is now you know a forty billion dollar you know market cap company. It wouldn't be that without it. But it was the way that we that the way that we prioritized getting it and the way that we actually landed it and then preserved a future expansion and and you know kind of upsell motion for ourselves without competition. I think was, you know, kind of a strategic unlock for the way the company was built. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Maybe, maybe one last question on this topic. Uh, I'm curious now, as you think about your time at Atlassian and you now reflect on your own work as an investor and you think about some of the benefits and some of the downsides of the way you did things, and then you think about the companies you work with today, or you just reflect on the ecosystem at large, do you think that companies are raising too much capital too often and would be better served, not from a dilution perspective, but even just from a operations perspective by maybe not raising nothing, but doing something closer to Atlassian? Or do you think that Atlassian was for some reason a unique case and it's not something for, for most you know, tech companies to emulate? I, I think... You know, it's always situational. It depends on, you know, the actual the company and the market segment they're in and what they're going after and how they're going to do it and, and what it'll take. I mean, certainly there are examples of companies that are bootstrapped or haven't raised a lot of capital. I invested in one called Browser Stack. I'm on the board of, of one called Zapier. There's examples. I think they're, they're rare, more rare than otherwise because, you know, it's, it's, a different, it's a different type of challenge and a different way of building a company. And you know, I, I think the trade-off is potentially slower, more durable growth, more durable long-term growth. The segments that you sell into and how you want to, you know, how you want to win in those segments. And, you know, there there could be, there could be a version of history that is written where those companies that went top down uh, starved Atlassian's ability to kind of win in those markets. And every, you know, every company that, that, that uh, did a million dollar deal with that competitor, kicked it lasting out, and, and it, you know we never got it back or something. And that, that isn't what happened, I think, because the other thing that you had to do is you had to build a product that part of our strategy depended on building a product that that actually generated you know user love, uh, which which is probably a strong statement to say about Jira, but you know it exists. There are people that that really love to use it, and when it's configured right, it can make a big di you know difference inside of companies. And so we had a kind of user poll. We were trying to win the hearts and minds of of people for whom uh, you know they would be the primary users, and that that isn't always true in 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 top down selected enterprise software where somebody's made a big decision and then you know they've spent a million dollars on a, on a big purchase for part of the organization that really didn't vote. There was sort of some small group of people that maybe selected it. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, why are we using this? This is kind of awful. Um, and, and anyway, I mean, they're, they're, so it, it, it kind of depends. I do think that, you know, the thing that we learned that, that sort of, uh, I think frugality point and, you know, and, and an orientation really thinking about where, where the money would be invested 
and and what return we could produce that was, with that investment. That was a that was a deep discipline. I don't think that that exists everywhere. But it, by the way, it does exist in companies that raise venture capital too. I mean, I've got a bunch of them that I've invested in, and so uh, it's hard to say like one thing looks like this and another looks like that because obviously you know both approaches produce. Um, great outcomes in, in businesses. A lot of this boils down to just really good execution and strategy and one foot out of the, you know, building a company is hard, <laughs> whichever way you do it, whether, you know, you've, you've raised, you know, raised capital from investors or you've bootstrapped yourself, the, the things that you need to do are just tough. And there's lots of great, great examples of companies that have raised capital and stubbed their toe on different things and didn't quite execute right. And there's lots of probably examples of companies that bootstrapped and didn't quite get there because they weren't aggressive or ambitious enough. To that end, when you do something different and you're successful, it's hard sometimes to disentangle whether you're successful because of it or successful, you know, in spite of it or, or if it was neutral. And, and you guys did a lot of di things differently. We'll, we'll get to them. You know, Jack just asked about fundraising, but I'm curious if we could reflect on some other areas where you feel that you guys are the exception to the rule. And you say, uh, you know, when companies are asking you about your case study, you say, hey, I wouldn't necessarily do it like we did it. There's something unique that Atlassian did that more companies should should emulate, whether it's multi-product or, or from the get-go or, or other things that you feel that you, unique to what you guys did that more companies should emulate or they should not emulate. I use it was, it was uh, an exception to the rule. Yeah, well, I I mean, I'm I'm biased, but I think there's there's if you've got a big enough market. I mean, the, a lot of a lot of what Atlassian was able to construct in its strategy hinged on the fact that our TAM was big, right? And so, really, and if you look at how many customers Atlassian has, I mean, it measures its customer base in the hundreds of thousands of like real legitimate, you know, usage. If you've got a TAM that big, then I think you need you need to to be thoughtful around the construction of your business model and how you want to go after that. And and by the way, the other things around the business model. And so, you know, I've talked I've talked previously about you know, we we thought a lot about just building economies around the company. And, you know, we built, um, you know, uh, a services and reseller channel that was like this third-party economy, you know, helping sell our products into more complex environments, but also implement, implement it around the world and removing friction from the buying process where we didn't support local language or currency or a bunch of things that just made it hard for the customer to, to come to us. Um, and, you know, that meant that there were hundreds of these small little companies all over the globe that were hiring people inside of their business that would ded be dedicated to our business. And so that that's a hugely, you know, virtuous and valuable thing to kind of build around your company. Hard to do, takes a lot of time, especially if you're building, you know, a direct selling motion where you're like, well, I'm going to remove that friction myself. I'm going to sell in all the foreign currencies. I'm going to sell in all the languages. I'm going to do all the things. You'll never build you know, sort of an indirect thing that can maybe compliment you because you do it directly. Uh, we built an ISV kind of app uh, ecosystem around the company. And so, you know, pu publishing, documenting and publishing all our APIs uh, and sort of being first class about like how people could extend our products and then building a marketplace where our customers could reach into that ecosystem and buy things, you know, through a singular, you know, singular marketplace. That uh, takes a long time to do and, and, uh, a lot of energy and, you know, the, the, you know, those seeds basically you have to water for a long time before they pay off. But again, huge defensive, you know, moat around the company, because I don't even know how many add-ons, you know, most Atlassian customers have, but it's probably measured in the dozens. And so in addition to being a little stickier because they've surrounded our software with other software, there's this whole vibrant economy of of companies that are, you know, that are again making money, and individual developers or small companies that are, um, you know, that are making money on top of our platform. The customer community, you know, ag again, we worked really hard at 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 building a credentialing system so we could train people on how to become a Scrum master. Or, you know, we we believed that having Jira in your title in your LinkedIn profile would be a recruitable feature. And that proved true. And so we put a lot of energy in, into training programs and certification programs, and then you know building customer community programs where people could find each other. So I mean, I, and again, I think all of those things, if we had a if we had a small TAM and we measured customers in the hundreds, those things wouldn't make a lot of sense to do. You do other things to to get those customers, but but I but I think that's sort of the main takeaway is if if your market. Um, kind of looks comparable to ours, and you've got lots of like you can imagine your software being in hundreds of thousands of places. I think those things are worth building. They're hard to build, but they are worth building. 
Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to, I'd love to poke on that. So hopefully, you know, as many founders as possible, I think either want to be in or are in or have some plan to get into a massive TAM. I think like, certainly that's like the goal for, for all of us. So assuming that you believe you're in a sufficiently big TAM, I'd love to talk about some of the tactics that help you get to these places of, of real dominance. A couple threads that I think are interesting to pull on here. One is Atlassian's pricing. I remember when Lattice got started in 2015 and we were like looking at like, you know, some other software companies, what could our pricing be? I remember looking at Atlassian's website, at least then, and being like, oh my God, you can get like 10 seats for $10 total, or, you know, like really had these like low barrier to entry prices. Um, obviously also, you know, you've talked about the fact that there were all these integrations. And so like there was this sense in which you're going to get in cheaply. You're going to get hooked through these integrations. So I guess I'm I'm curious to pull on perhaps those two threads first of like for a startup that's trying to get to some amount of ubiquity in their in their market or a startup that's trying to get some real lock in. Can you share some of your thinking around pricing and ecosystem in particular? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in better, faster, cheaper, and and I think. You know, if you can be all three of those, it is a it is a it is a hard combination to beat. Um, I think if you're not all three, there's a vulnerability that some competitor or alternative can attack, and sometimes that thing you know will win. If you're all three, it's it's just hard to win against you. You know, if you're just if you're if you're better and faster, but you're way more expensive. You know, there's there's just a soft underbelly for somebody to say, great, I'm not quite as good, but I'm on a fraction of the cost. And that's actually going to matter to some part of the customer base that you're trying to win. And and so that's how we thought about it. We, you know, we thought, by the way, on TAM, like when I talk about TAM, you know, we we were very deliberate in, in defining our TAM as, as uh, just quantum of customers that we could reach. We weren't trying to define the TAM as dollars that we could get. I mean, we did that too, but you know, we also were deliberate in trying to shrink the the current measured TAM of competitors by driving the price down, and and then and then once we won it, by the way, which is what Atlassian had, had done, we expanded it for ourselves, right? Like all the money that we left on the table early on was the, was ours ours to go get later on, which which we did, and so that was like an intentional strategy. Is like we can shrink. The, the, the TAM by dollar. So there's sort of less market, but we're going to win that market. And then over time, we can kind of expand it with all, you know, other things that we could sell that customer base and a bunch of other, other stuff. So, so that's like, if, I think if you have the ability to be ubiquitous, you know, a couple of things, like one, you know, if, if, if there's hundreds of thousands of companies for you to go get, like you have to think about like the rate limiter on acquiring them. And if it's if you build a traditional selling model, the rate limiter is how many how many people, how many salespeople can I bring on board and train and build pipeline for and all that sort of stuff. So the rate limiter is just human capital, and then all the complexity of kind of building and on you know building a system that onboards all that human capital and gets them productive and all that sort of stuff. Pricing is is part of that that equation, right? Because of like if you're, if you're super cheap in our particular case, you know part of what drove the development of our business model is our products were so cheap. Like just the economics wouldn't support traditional selling. It just wouldn't like salespeople, you you would make, you would lose money on every salesperson that you hired, right? Just because the ACVs were in the in the single digit thousands of dollars. And so the minute that that you know you have brought in a bunch of salespeople, you'd be like, man, for us to actually make this math work, we will have to charge a lot more, right? Otherwise it's just broken. And so so that was one way to go, which is what happens a lot of times. Or the other way to go is. Like, no, we just have to figure out a different way to distribute our product, to acquire, you know, land and expand customers without that, with all, all, without that human, you know, selling machinery. And by the way, the thing that we're willing to trade is we're willing to trade, trade lower AC, you know, trade away higher ACDs for lower ACDs. We're willing to trade away higher growth because of this like big valuable enterprise segment that we're not going to, to monetize in the way that we believe we could based on the product and based on different things that we can invest. Those are all trades. And, and so we were willing to trade all that stuff for, you know, for, for just a different type of business that we were building in the early years that we believed, again, would advantage, advantage us in the future from a competitive perspective and from, you know, from other things. So it's, it's, uh, 
you know, that's how I think about it. To answer your question, like if you've really got the opportunity ubiquitous, I just think you need to think about how am I going to get all of these customers and make the make the economics worth? And then what are my advantages competitively? I think if if you can square I am better, you know, I'm faster and I'm cheaper, it's like that is you've got the trifecta. What else is there? Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of wisdom to this. And I think it's probably something that maybe not enough startups do. Like, you know, it's a very common refrain to hear people talking about you should drive your prices up as high as possible, you know, keep doubling your prices until like it really breaks. And there's a lot of ways in which um, the startup community pushes founders to try to explore the upper bound of what price their market can tolerate. Part of also what's on my mind is sitting here in 2023, when there's been so much venture capital that's gone into the industry, when cost structures have gotten really high because salaries have gotten expensive and it's just like the cost of like building the software itself in some sense has gotten cheaper, but actually the cost structure that so many companies are sitting on is large enough. Do you think that we're probably in some ways now ripe for a world where a lot of companies can in fact differentiate in these hyper competitive multi multiplayer market vendor markets where people should be thinking more about looking at their pricing and asking, can we make it cheaper more often? I do. When I think when there was a lot of venture capital coming into the system, and I, I, I became an investor to look for companies that had the opportunity to build business models that were similar to uh, Alaskans. And by the way, I found, I found a bunch, but I saw a bunch that, that actually didn't invest that way. I think because there was so much capital where they could basically just spend a lot of money on, on a traditional selling system. And they weren't necessarily thinking about kind of long-term strategy. It was like, how do I, how do I get as fast? How do I grow as fast as possible, as quick as possible? And, and if that were, if that were the goal, I would not build a business model like Atlassian's because, because Atlassian's numbers didn't like, didn't do that, right? It was, you know, it was not a company that did the triple, triple, double, double, double. It kind of, I mean, it didn't exactly look like a turd because it was, it was sitting off free cash flow, but you know, when it, when you're when you're at twenty or thirty or forty million of ARR and only growing fifty percent, that is not a that is not a super sexy company by today by then by then standards, but certainly by today's standards. And so I think like, all of us have, have been sort of like uh, I don't know trained to think about this certain pattern. And if you, if you don't see that pattern, it's kind of like ah, it's. Like, I don't want to dance with that person. Like, they're, they're not as attractive as sort of ones that, you know, ones that look look a certain way. One quick question on that. I, is there any sense in which, even in those years when the revenue wasn't, like, exploding triple-double, was there some metric, like, number of distinct companies that are getting activated? Was there some sparkle metric inside all of those otherwise bland metrics that maybe a discerning person could have looked and said, oh, something special is happening there? Or was it all kind of just medium? Well, I mean, I think, by the way, the metrics weren't necessarily bland. I think what you, I think what you had to believe uh, is, you know, first of all, the, the, the product had incredibly high NPS, um, the product was sticky. And so like when we landed a customer, like they didn't, they stuck with us, the expansion metri metrics were, were off the charts, right? Because like you would, you would start so small and it was so cheap to expand that, you know, the virality of a collaborative product like Jira, where you just invited additional teams and invited additional users, it just, you know, continued to grow. And so th those, those like sparkled to you, to use your phrase, but then, but then I think you needed to understand that, that there's just so many, like the rate of new customer acquisition, like the units that we were acquiring was pretty remarkable. It's sort of like, you know, even today at lasting ads, I don't know, somewhere between six and 10,000 net new, not gross new, like net new customers a quarter um, after, you know, whatever, 20 years of being in business is still, it's still acquiring people. And by the way, those are brand new, like never touched an Alaskan product. And you're like, how is that possible? You would appreciate that the company had pricing power. Like it, it was so affordable that you would believe at any time it's got the opportunity to charge more um, or to sell more and, it's customers are going to look and say, wow, I've gotten so much, I get so much value for this. Like, what else can you sell me? What else can I buy from you? And, and that turned out to be true. So I think if you looked at it, that's what you would need to see. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If, if someone was on this call who's a passionate believer in raising prices more than you think, and they were disagreeing with us, 
what is their disagreement? What, what do they believe is is different from what, what we we believe in terms of why it's important to to raise prices more, more than you think? Well, I think they they can test you know the elasticity of a particular price, and you and you can you know you're you're really testing willingness to pay, and I'm I'm sure willingness to pay can be different than than uh, than how much market can I go get at a certain price over, over certain price over what over a certain time period. That's a, that's a different thing that I would test for. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of examples where people like are still winning customers at the same rate as they were after they increased their price by 50%, but um, they're probably not testing how many more customers could I acquire for myself that I have the future opportunity to grow at a different price point if I lower my price by 50% or by whatever. You know, marketing is important for for lots of things and, and sort of like in, in all of my history as a marketer, um, everything that we did incrementally like benefited the business. And so, you know, marketing, I always describe as like a game of inches. Once you understand kind of how the levers work and, you know, you've instrumented SEM and SEO and kind of brand, you know, campaigns or display ad campaigns and your event marketing strategy, your PR strategy and you know, your, your, your field marketing strategy and like all of your social marketing, your social strategy, once you've got it going, unless you're terrible at certain things, you know, the improvements that you'll make in that and the additional energy will, will be incremental. And this was true of Atlassian too. Like anything that we did, it always had this sort of like incremental uplift on whatever metric we were trying to move. The only time that we inflected metrics was pricing changes, pricing decreases, right? You could look at, five years of historical data and you would see this sort of like slight uptick of traffic to the web or uh or you know traffic to trial rates trial conversion rates or just absolute trials it was always just the steady incremental up when we were the first time we we radically decreased price in the global financial crisis of 09 it was a, it was a step change. It was just like this. And by the way, it it shot up and then it plateaued. It was like a new plateau for us in terms of the the people that came to Atlassian.com every day that never came before, the the people that signed up for a trial that never signed up before. What blew my mind is we had a the first kind of pricing change was we went from like a thousand thousand dollars to ten dollars for ten users. Pretty big jump, right? And that had like this profound impact when you looked at it, you were like, oh my god, this is just a, a you know, an order of magnitude, you know, more people it really was an order of magnitude, more people that would just consider us. And we did another big change where we went from basically $10 to free, same effect. And, you know, there's going to be other noise in the system when you bring a bunch of free people in uh, or even $10 people in. And, and so it doesn't always sort of flow all the way down into, you know, the ultimate metrics, but the, just the quantum of people that we could now talk to about what we did. And, there's nothing else that we did in marketing even approached that. It didn't matter. Like if you like, we would do crazy stuff. We would spend all these all this money on billboards and you know out of home airport buyouts and all that sort of stuff. And it would it just you wouldn't you wouldn't do it. Now you need to do some of those things to basically continue to penetrate market as it gets harder for you to penetrate. Uh, but the the true inflections in in our funnel really only came from pricing impaction. So that's sort of like the counterpoint that I would give to the person that would say, you know, we've we've tested our price and we can still win the same customers at 50% higher price. I just think there's more market that you're not seeing. Yeah, I think this is a good push. And I think it's uh, it's contrarian in a way it shouldn't be in, in tech. You don't, I feel like you don't hear it enough. So I appreciate it. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the idea of um, being a multi-product company early on and uh, both building things yourselves or acquiring companies, but just this concept of, of being multi-product, I think this is something that historically, at least, more commonly, you would see companies wait longer than Atlassian did, certainly. Uh, and often, I think, much longer. I think a lot of you know great companies even didn't really get into second or third products until tens or even 100 million of, of revenue. Um, and Atlassian did this did this really early. Uh, this is something I'm particularly interested in because uh, we've done this at Lattice. Also, I, you know, HubSpot, where you're on the board, is like a really wonderful multi-product company that I would just like love to hear your point of view on. How do you think about being a multi-product company and when it's appropriate uh, for a company to do it uh, in its life cycle? Well, most companies will need 
a second or a third act, which often involves product portfolio expansion, either either built or bought. And it is obviously hard hard to do. I, I think most companies that are lost to history and technology didn't do it. They either didn't do it at all or they waited too long. And I, I you know, timing is always tricky because because I think you want to do it before your your first app has crescendoed. And, you know, because oftentimes like, you know, it's just going to suck a bunch of energy into trying to rebound that first thing or fix fix whatever's broken in that first thing. And so all of your kind of tension and energy is is there because that first thing matters. You can't give up on it. And, and so I, I think there's an argument to say, be thinking about that second act and third act and, and, and constructing it in some shape or form while your first act is still on the rise. You don't want to, you know, like, I, I just think if you wait too long, it's like, it's just hard to say we need to do this other thing. Cause then it's sort of a pivot or, you know, it's a rescue. It's like, well, man, that thing's, that ship's going down. We need to, you know, build different boats. I, you know, multi-product companies just have more inherent complexity. They just do. There's, it's not just having a second thing that you need to care and feed. It's like all of the bits and pieces around, you know, op the, the operating company that need to support it. It's how you think about pricing and packaging and, you know, the priority order of, of, of what you land with and what you expand with and, you know, what you cross sell to which customer budgeting and, and goal setting, um, you know, like where all organizational energy is finite. And so the more energy in one thing means less energy in another. It's just the way that it works. And that's usually most acute in, in budgets and goals. And, you know, because you're going to say, we want this thing to grow a little bit faster. We're going to give it more to do that. It means this other thing is probably going to have to give something up. And maybe that means it also has to give up something in, in, in the goals, you know, that, that it wants to achieve because it's going to have, have less resource. Like how you how you merchandise things, even on the homepage, it's sort of like, how do I talk about like these five or six things? What's the main thing that I talk about here? I want to let people know that I've got a bunch of stuff, but it's not just a phone book. They're going to flip through. Like I've got a purpose and, and I want to, I want to, I want to guide them on, on what matters. And there's a lot of tension. And do I try to like, you know, load them up with everything that I think will give them value up front? Or do I, do I figure out really what they need right now in the moment and win that one thing? So I, again, preserve a future opportunity to expand them with the others. Those are all like really hard. And by the way, they were hard for us. You know, we had this meeting that we called the Hunger Games. And, and it was basically the, the, the prioritization meeting of uh, email marketing messaging into, into the customer base. Because of course, everybody wanted to be front and center on that, you know, that message, like, you know, you've got millions and millions of users that we could tell them what, you know, anything, uh, and sure, we want to use data to get really smart about that, but, you know, they may not know what we want them to know. And so like, put them in front of the queue and you've got like, there's so much stuff that competes for that. And so that meeting was this, this prioritization meeting of what decisions are we making and why? And the reason we call it Hunger Games is because like everybody came in, and, you know, it's like the trials, like everybody came in and had their agenda and you'd have to kind of referee what really mattered. And by the way, the, the, that was really early on. We got very good at clarifying strategy and, and like what our land and, and expand priorities were. But I just like, I think all those things are muscles and it just takes real work to get fitness around them. You know, the more reps you do, like the the less that atrophies or kind of the more fit that 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 system is. And I think the bigger you are, I just believe the harder it is to get real fitness because there's just so there's so much institutional, you know, scar tissue and all sorts of stuff that to to build that kind of new thing is hard. And any new thing is just going to be small and potentially inconsequential at the outset. And um and it's also, by the way, easy to tax those new things with with all of the organizational carry, you know, of that first product. And that's what I've seen be really hard. And I think like we had an advantage of where we, you know, we we did it really young. And so we were just like, we were just a tiny little company that started the second thing. And so there wasn't too much energy to compete with. And then there were two things. And like, once we built the rhythm of of having two things, adding that, it's like kind of like, like having kids, right? Like, once you've been through two kids, then, you know, the kind of the joys and the nightmare. Yeah. Like the nightmare of like feeding schedules and not getting any sleep and all that sort of stuff. Like the second one is like, oh, it's a little bit easier. The third, you know, it just raises itself pretty much. 
By the way, HubSpot, HubSpot did it very differently where, where they, you know, they, they basically want, wanted to, to build this, this, this second thing, which is basically the sales product. But I think in a really clever way, you know, they put that, that new product team in a, in a, in their own building. It's like almost completely isolated from, from, you know, HubSpot core at the time, the marketing product. And they built the sales hub and the sales product that way, where they really wanted that team to be first principles oriented and not even be able to draft off of all the other stuff. It's like you on your own need to kind of build this thing. And, and when it got to a certain size or scale, they kind of brought it back and integrated it. Yeah, I mean, I guess with, with that HubSpot product, I guess it was also, it was deep at the level of not just another application, but HubSpot was really going from, in my understanding, applications to really building like a database level platform CRM, which is just so substantial of a move that you almost need a different whole DNA, I imagine, to, to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. On the topic of building muscles, which I completely agree with, that like organizations kind of create, they institutionally create muscles. Atlassian, I think you mentioned to me at some point that you did like 17 acquisitions in 20 years, some, some like large number of acquisitions that very few startups end up doing. And you end up, of course, I'm sure with that really, you know, by the fourth or fifth acquisition, you're like, all right, we know what we're doing here versus the first one is hard and, you know, different and whatever. So I'm, I'm curious your reflection on, on acquisitions. Uh, is this something that you feel like was super important for Atlassian? Did it do things besides just acquiring the product where it sort of drove, you know, operational rigor for the company because you had to have it to ingest these companies. What are your reflections looking back on such a high volume of acquisitions uh, for, for a company? Sure, we got better the more more we did, but also the bar gets higher, right? The bigger you are, the bigger, you know, the company that you're acquiring probably is. And that makes it, you know, a, a different degree of complexity that you've never faced before. And, and um, but, You've got some prior art where you're like, we learned this lesson with the smaller one. This will be different in the, with this bigger one, but you know, we learned some things that we can kind of apply to this context, and then you just have to like um, kind of figure out, figure it out along the way. And we would take kind of learnings from every. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? How do we apply the things into a bigger, more complicated context that makes sense? And then what do we need to just figure out in the moment to make it work? Part of what we were good at is we were good at understanding that sort of that broadening product portfolio and, and pricing and packaging harmonization and like how you take things to market and how you reach the customer base and how we think about kind of the priority order of what goes where and when. Um, that's what we got really good at, which, which, and we had a system for it. So we, when we brought a new thing in, we, we knew how to integrate it into that system. And then, you know, I, I would say like a couple other things we learned along the way that were valuable. Like we, when we acquired Trello, and this is one that you know I share with companies to think about because we were maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand people at the time, and they were a couple hundred, and uh, but big enough where they you know they had things that they really cared about. They had a great culture, and you know there were traditions and and sort of like you know little little special parts of their culture that mattered to them. And we were uh, you know we our all hands meetings we called all hands. And um, and they called there's town halls and it was symbolic, but it was it was genuine and meaningful. Like we rebranded our 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 all hands meetings to town halls, and you know I think for them it was like oh wow that's not something that they needed to do, but it was it was sort of a touchstone for them, and it was a an example of us saying you know we care about you being a part of us so much that we're willing to kind of change this part of our own architecture to have it be be more familiar to you. But they were remote. Uh, first company, and you know, we were a very distributed company, but you know, we adopted a bunch of their learnings around uh, remote collaboration. So things that everybody does now, where it's like, you know, if you've got a couple people in a room, a bunch of people that are at home, everybody basically goes on Zoom, so we're all even. No, nobody's disadvantaged by not being in a room. And we began to do that, like even at a at a management level. I think you and everyone is a different learning situation. It's you know, like we made a lot of smaller technology company and smaller, you know, smaller technology acquisitions and then a couple of meaningful big products along the way. So it was a pretty interesting mix. When you look back, given that you, you've done so many uh, on the acquisitions themselves, and when you look back at, hey, maybe ones you missed that you should have acquired that you, you didn't get to for whatever reason or ones that you did, but maybe you paid too much or whatever wasn't the right fit. Did you, were there, was there any part of your criteria that you refined 
over time or any any lessons worth sharing with the the founders listening? I mean, we cared a lot about strategy alignment. Like, yeah, you have to, you, you like, you, have, you really have to believe, you know, especially if you want this to work, if you want, uh, if you want the combination to produce more than, you know, than the thing could individually or any, any, any part of, of both companies could do individually, you have to be aligned on what you're going to do. And, and so we, that's a lesson that we learned along the way and just making sure that that alignment is true up front. And yeah, there's dollars and cents and kind of economics downstream that kind of matter to people, but you know, the thing that we're actually trying to accomplish needs to be shared. And that's sort of one, uh, we needed business model alignment. I mean, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for Atlassian to acquire something that was, uh, you know, had ASV, you know, ACVs of, of a million dollars. And, uh, even in the, even though in the end, when, like once we kind of like turned on our enterprise business, you know, we acquired a company called Agile Craft that, really just sells into the global 2K and, you know, and, and it was something that our customers needed that complemented where we were in a really logical way. And by then, you know, we'd added um, enterprise selling features to the business model. And so, uh, but early on, that wouldn't have made sense just because it, it would have been an impedance mismatch with like how we operated and what we were trying to do to have this other thing that was trying to do something really different. We ended up like harmonizing uh, kind of business models, I think pretty effectively. Like I'll give you an example. Like we had, you know, we acquired companies that had um, selling teams and part of our business model, part of the tenets of our business model was we don't discount and we don't negotiate terms and conditions. And it's just what we do. So even if we're going to have sellers, uh, we are not discounting and negotiating contracts any longer. That's just like not the way our business model works. And by the way, We've proven that it's that that works for us, and so we believe it'll work for this acquisition company. Of course, like that met from selling teams that met with a lot of resistance. It's like, oh, you can't, you know, like if I'm not allowed to discount or not allowed to, to negotiate these terms and conditions, I won't win the business that I that you need me to win. And uh, in almost like in almost, like I think in every case, we would say like, look at the just what does the math say the average discount is? Let's just make that the new price, and then not then you won't need to discount. Like, I mean, that's part of like, you've, let's just take the price down to what you're discounting to, publish that as the already discounted price for everybody. And then you don't need to discount further. And then um, let's, you know, most of the customers, like they'd already agreed to terms and conditions that we hadn't had to negotiate. And so like, we're just going to hard line. It's not moved. The businesses weren't harmed. You know, they, in fact, they picked up velocity, you know, so it's, it's uh, like, and that was, I think, just sticking to our guns on, like, we've proven these things work and we think they can work in this shared context. And so, you know, we'll make it, we'll make it work. Those are great lessons. Um, maybe one last question just with our last couple of minutes, switching gears over to HubSpot, um, where you're on the board. Uh, this is like one of the companies I, I most look up to in, in software today. And I, it's an amazing company on so many levels. But one question that I was curious to ask you about uh, it's thousands of employees. It's like getting close to a couple decades in and the talent that the company has and the culture the company has seems to me really unique. Like I frequently will meet somebody who works at HubSpot, has been there for seven years or nine years or 12 years, loves the company, is whip smart, really cares. And I'm just, I'm curious how it is working at this scale to still feel like that because it strikes me as so uncommon to be 7,000 employees or whatever HubSpot is and still have that level of employee magic. And I'm curious if there's anything you've observed from a board level or or, or what seems to make it tick that way. I, I mean, culture matters and it, culture requires like intention and and effort and you know, things that you do well and things you don't do well that you fix and it, that they've just been very deliberate from an early age. I think if you don't start it at an early age, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to course correct after that. Your culture kind of is what it is. And by the way, that comes from founders. It comes from, you know, Brian and Darmesh at a really early age and the type of company that you want to build came from Mike and Scott. It comes from you at Lattice. And, and so I, I think it kind of starts there, but then it's, it's also, you know, it, it's also also how that intention and, and being deliberate takes takes shape. And so, like, you know, they have a they have a deck that's public called Culture Code, 
which talks a, a lot about this. And, you know, one of the things that they talk about that resonates with me is, you know, they treat culture as a product. And by the way, like we treated our business model at lasting, like I think everything inside of a business is like, think of it as a product. Like you ship an MVP and it may be missing a bunch of stuff that you're going to have to add to it over time. And then, you know, naturally the, the product that you ship and your culture product that you ship when you're 10 people is going to have to be very different when you're a thousand people or 10,000 people. So you're constantly going to have to like figure out what features do we take away because they no longer make sense or they're not being used or what features do we need to rebuild just because like they haven't scaled or evolved? What features do we need to add? And we thought about our business model, by the way, like very similar. We we're like the business model is a product and like adding, adding enterprise salespeople is a feature that, you know, that we may not need to add when we're at 50 million, we'll probably need to add when we're at 500 million. Like, well, you know, what does that look like? And I, I think, you know, they've treated their culture um, as a product and, and done that. And, you know, the other thing they say that resonated a lot with me is, you know, you really, any company is building, building two products, probably at three, if you think about your business model, but, um, you know, you're building a product for your customers and then you're building a different product for your employees. And, and it's, it's just that idea that this is a product that we're going to like care and feed and shape and change and evolve because we, we just, we want this place to be the best place that it can be for the, the, the quantum of people that are in it with us, you know, building, you know, everything for our customers. And, and, and then I think, you know, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, you have to walk the walk. It can't just be um, slide decks and, you know, uh, cleverly worded values and things like that. Companies, if they don't have leadership and people that that do the things that on the paper that they say they do, it's just very hollow and you won't meet the type of people that you said you meet. But I think if if you really follow all the way through, that is, you know, the best, the best recruiting system in the world is is that is treating people well, like creating the system where you're gonna be able to do good work and that you're gonna treat people with respect and dignity and and honor and integrity and give them a chance to do the best work of work of their life. Like if that's the system that you're building and you actually like are fulfilling that people will stay and people will come. And, uh, and that's, by the way, I think, I think at last end, it also worked really hard at that and cared a lot about its culture. And, and, um, you know, I was able to participate in that for 12 years, but both companies are very similar in, in just being intention, ten, intentional about what they're building. I uh, I think that's an inspiring note to to, to wrap on. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for coming to the podcast and sharing your hard earned uh, wisdom and lessons with us. Yeah, fun guys.